Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, we speak to Cynthia Enlo. Cynthia grew up outside New York City, studied in California and in Malaysia, and now teaches at Clark University in Massachusetts. Her teaching and writing explore diverse women's and girls' lives in wartime and in situations of recovery from war, but also inside globalized factories doing paid domestic work and on agricultural plantations. Cynthia tries to shed a bright light on the unjust local and international workings of both patriarchy and militarism. Among her most recent books are Seriously Investigating Crashes and Crises as if Women Mattered of 2010, a new updated edition of Bananas, Beaches and Bases of 2014, and The Big Push, Exposing and Challenging Persistent Patriarchy in 2017. In this episode, Cynthia talks to us about the current global climate and how women work towards calling for their fundamental rights to be enforced, her works and her books, as well as her popular feminist slogan, The Personal is Political. Thank you so much, Miss Cynthia, for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, Vishnavi, I'm so pleased to be here. All right. So uh, my first question for you is that, so you're one of the pioneers in the field of feminism in international relations. Can you tell us how this journey of research and inquiry began? Well, I have to admit, and your listeners should um, uh, take on board, I think, that I spent a lot of years not asking feminist questions. Mm -hmm. So it's never too late to ask feminist questions. Um, And I actually think a lot, I went all the way through university Mm -hmm. and then through graduate school and my PhD and my first now, this is really embarrassing. I think my first six books mm-hmm. and my first, oh, seven years of teaching, mm-hmm. um, I did not ask feminist questions. I was trained in political science. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked, in fact, I had been following Indian politics because okay. I was really keen to understand ethnic and racial politics everywhere and um, in political parties, in elections, in local government, um, in, well, in in the economy, and also especially um, in militaries and police forces. So I was watching um, where are the Sikhs, you know, in Indian security forces, but I was also following where were uh, Muslim soldiers in the Soviet military, so I spent a lot of time, and actually, that was a good thing, because when I finally woke up and started asking feminist questions about masculinities and femininities and taking women's lives seriously, right. I didn't leave behind my curiosity about the workings of ethnocentrism, mm-hmm. ethnic identity, and racism. I kind of pulled them with me, and I think it's helped me never to simply generalize about girls or women, but always to ask, well, is it the same for um, Hindu girls as it is for Muslim girls in India? Is it the same for Tibetan girls and women as it is for Han Chinese in China? Um, So it's really was, even though I now look back and I'm embarrassed at how long it took me to start asking gender questions about international politics, Um, I'm glad I spent all those years really taking seriously 
um, especially marginalized ethnic and racial groups, because that really helped me to not oversimplify mm -hmm. the diverse experiences of women and girls. Mm -hmm. So uh, this ties into a question I had about the, the term um, feminist curiosity, which you've been credited with coining. So uh -huh. what, what has that term come to mean to you in the last few years? Well, Vashini, one of the things that was prompted me to first use it is I was giving um, a series of lectures in Tokyo, in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I realized it was on gender and international politics. And, and people from all over the city came, which was really exciting. And we had wonderful conversations. But I also, that meant that I realized that a lot of people were very new to asking feminist questions and maybe a little scared of asking them or not quite sure was it just ideological or could you do really serious research using mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A, um, a feminist approach. And so I started with this Japanese audience, but I, I began using it other places too, as you know. I started using the term curiosity, which okay. allowed me to reassure people, look, you don't have to call yourself a feminist. Maybe you're not there yet, or maybe that just isn't how you define yourself yet. Right. Or maybe you don't want to have to explain to everybody what does it mean to be a feminist if you call yourself one. So there might be all kinds of reasons for not calling yourself a feminist, at least in the early stages of your understanding. Mm -hmm. um, but you can ask feminist questions without calling yourself a feminist you right. can and that was where curiosity came in it was it was saying look before you call yourself anything just start asking the kind of questions about your surroundings and about the world that feminists have learned to ask just ask the questions and see what you find see what um light you shed on things you thought you already knew about by asking feminist questions. And that was gaining a feminist curiosity before perhaps you even think of yourself as a feminist. So that's why I started using it and I still use it. I think to tell you the truth, you know, I, I am a teacher to my core. Right. And so I teach a lot of students who very rightly um, are skeptical about Feminism. I mean, it's new to them and they think it's all just ideological. They don't realize how it's really about understanding the world. And so it's very helpful with people who are skeptical or new to feminist understandings uh, to use the term curiosity. And because that's not labeling yourself. That's just a strategy for asking about the world in ways that other people perhaps don't want you to investigate. Right. That, that's really interesting. So what were some of the obstacles that you faced as someone who was breaking into a relatively unexplored area in international relations? I think the first obstacle, and I wasn't by myself, I may have been one of the first to publish a book that got shared widely. And maybe that's why of course, um, yes. I got known, but there were other people um, from varieties of countries who almost at the same time, this was in the um, 1980s and mm -hmm. especially 
uh, by the early 1990s, um, who were also beginning to ask gender questions about international relations. And one of the obstacles we all had, and we still talk about it a lot, is that it was asking those questions and trying to share those findings were not taken seriously. And I'm very interested in the power that people have who have the influence enough to say you're not serious or you're not being serious. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I wrote a whole book called Seriously with an exclamation mark because, <laughs> <Right>. I, got, <laughs> because I got very interested in how the people who have influence in the media or maybe it's just your school principal or maybe it's your you know, supervisor at work or maybe it's your uncle, I mean, who have influence over who is taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And it really is wielded. It's wielded like a sword is wielded to discredit people. So one to say that you're trivial or that you're marginal or that you're, quote, not serious. So that's been the biggest obstacle, and it's still a big obstacle. So I spend a lot of time, and so do my colleagues and friends around the world who are trying to ask feminist questions about international relations. We spend a lot of time saying, here is why mm -hmm. you have to take it seriously. And that really is a, it's a good exercise. I mean, it's a good discipline in a sense because it makes us spell out what it is we all will miss and not understand or misunderstand if we don't ask feminist questions and take into account what we find when we do. Um, probably the biggest thing that we try to make clear to people is that if you don't ask feminist questions and you don't look at what you find when you ask them in international politics, or I'd say any kind of politics, no matter how intimate or how local, right. is that you miss the workings of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And only by taking women's lives seriously can you understand how masculinity works. I mean, there are some people who think, oh, masculinity, oh, we can continue to just be interested in men and boys. They're the ones who are interesting anyway. No, no, no. That's mm -hmm. not what feminists mean. Mm -hmm. They say that they, all of us have found that if you want to really understand how masculinity works to encourage injustice and to fuel inequality, then you have to be really serious in your attention to w diverse women's ideas and their experiences. Right. So one of the most well-known and famous uh, feminist slogans or taglines is the personal is political. And especially now more than ever, when people are starting to see how the patriarchy seeps into almost all of the aspects of our lives, the most unexpected, the most trivial. As feminists, do you think that we should pick our battles wisely when deeming which issues are quote unquote serious? Well, that's a really, that's a really good question to ask because it's Thank you. it's um it really is because all of us have very limited resources exactly I, right you know i don't get enough sleep but i still sleep i'm not awake 24 <laughs> hours a day mm -hmm. and you doing all this good work for red elephant 
you don't have limits, you know, unlimited resources or unlimited time. Mm -hmm. But this is why I think I've been thinking you're, I'm so glad you asked this. I, I think it's why we need so many different kinds of organizations all the time. So right. I don't, I don't know enough about how media companies work because of the hashtag me too movement. I'm spending a lot more time really trying to get up to speed on how does production work? Mm -hmm. You know, how do people get casted, but also who's behind the scenes uh, all these things that, because I'm not a media specialist, I don't really know about, but thank, thankfully there is now, there are organizations and I bet there's one in India too mm -hmm. called, you know, women in the media mm -hmm. or in um, Britain, I think it's women in journalism. Um, and so they're specialized organizations. Now the key, I think, for feminists and to say that the personal is political doesn't mean that everyone can just, you know, swim in their own lane mm -hmm. um, that in the pool, if you will, the pool of patriarchy. Um, right. But rather it's that we all should have specialized knowledge that we develop and then share it and then ask the big questions about how what happens in one newspaper or in one television studio or one film studio how that is affected by the whole media industry or the globalization of media and that says organize locally organize with specialized knowledge which mm -hmm. you have to work to gain and then share and take into account the bigger picture. But you're going to add to the meaning of the big picture by showing how it works in the thing, in the area you especially have gained expertise in. Mm -hmm. Right. We so, all can't do everything, but we all can share. Definitely. I definitely agree with that. So another similar question is that, and this is touching upon the fact that you mentioned that we should be focusing more on the women and not just about the men and the masculinities. Right. So a lot of your research has focused on the impact of ordinary women in the international system and in the global political economy. So why do you think such perspectives from women are often omitted or even not given importance in IR? I think a lot of people who are trying to understand international politics. Now, let's just take the good people. We won't take the people who just are sexist and want to protect their own status. Right. We won't even, let's not even talk about them. I mean, we know the problem with them. But let's take the, the people who are genuine in their efforts to understand international politics. I think one of the, and that can be women and men. I mean, a lot of women in international politics fields are trained by male mentors mm -hmm. and when they try to understand the arms trade or they try to understand international um, imports and exports or alliances, you know, any of those topics, um, they will slip right into what their non-feminist mentors taught them. So they, so there are women who don't ask good mm -hmm. feminist questions too. Mm -hmm. And I think that, they imagine wrongly that the way to study power and the workings of power and the uses and the misuses of power is to just study the people who have power. 
right? So yeah. that would mean that the way to study Indian politics would be just to study Modi and his cabinet ministers and mm -hmm. the senior mm -hmm. um, generals in the Indian army, but not to take into account army wives or not to take into account uh, women working as domestic workers in India, as if, well, the way to study Indian international politics today, and you could say this about Russia or about Sri Lanka or about Myanmar, um, the way to do it is just to focus your attention on the people with power. Mm -hmm. What feminists have learned, I mean, we've all taught each other, none of us woke up one morning and had knowledge, but what we've all learned from each other is the only way to study power is to study the people who in fact are dependent upon to be unpowerful because they are the pillars supporting, and I don't mean supporting meaning voting for, they're the pillars holding up mm -hmm. the whole power structure. And the power structure elite um, depend on those people um, as wives, as domestic workers, as garment workers, as electronic call-in center people. Um, they depend on those people, but they never, ever admit it. Mm -hmm. And nice. feminist scholars pull back the curtain and say, no, no, the people with power only have power because they have used that power to marginalize and silence and make invisible exactly. all the people they depend on, mm -hmm. most of whom are women. Right. That's the big revelation mm -hmm. that feminists have made for international politics. That is, to, the way to study power is to study the people who don't have it, mm -hmm. but that the elite depend on for their silences. Mm -hmm. That's a really um, interesting and different take that I've heard on feminism. So thank you for that. Um, so given the current political climate globally and how, you know, women seem to be struggling to keep hold of their most fundamental rights. And yeah. as, as women who are a, a, a marginalized group, what do you think we as women can do to make sure that our voices are heard? Well, Red Elephant's a very good example. <laughs> you, I mean, no, truly. Yes, you, yes. You, I mean, one of the things that you've done, and it is a splendidly feminist strategy, is you've created a forum for expression, mm -hmm. for women and girls to make sense of their own circumstances and of the world around them. Right. And most elites in all the countries that we're thinking of where women's rights are being shrunken and uh, restricted, um, Hungary and Poland and mm -hmm. Russia and India and the United States, mm -hmm. um, in all of those countries, one of the main efforts um, by um, elites, especially anti-feminist elites, mm -hmm. uh, is to shrink the space where people can express themselves and share experiences and strategies. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing and what many 
of the activists, in, and there's so many different ways to do it, is to open up the spaces, create spaces where nobody else thought there was a place to create that form. Mm -hmm. And that really is powerful because the way that women historically in every country have been marginalized and kept out of the circles where policies are made that will affect their lives is to silence them, mm -hmm. is to deny them a voice, mm -hmm. to deny them the, the space in which to organize and to share strategies and ideas. Mm -hmm. And Red Elephant and other organizations that are proliferating around the world mm -hmm. um, are insisting that women have ideas, they have experiences, and they have the capacity to organize. That really scares the misogynists. Definitely. I think that's, that's a really good step. And this, what you've said has reminded me of what you've written in one of your books, Bananas, Beaches and Bases. You wrote ah. that um, women play a vital but small and seemingly insignificant role in international diplomacy, at least on the surface level. So do you think that this has changed with more women entering politics? And how do you think that we can bring more women into such influential positions? Well, I think we have to be um, cautious here a bit. Mm -hmm. I don't mean cautious in the sense of not do anything. I just think we have to be aware that many governments have a stake that is an interest in putting now, because now it looks, it makes you look good. This is different than the 1950s. It now makes you look good as a powerful elite if you put forward at least a couple of token women. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful about when women are put forward in diplomacy or in even in defense policy, although they're very few, um, or in um, international organizations, are they tokenist? Mm. That is to put forward one woman or two and then isolate them just to turn them into window dressing is not a progress. It is right. just the latest camouflage for patriarchy. It's so, like performative feminism. Yes, exactly, but it's very strategic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is, the people doing it realize that, you know, 2018 demands that at least you make a tokenist gesture right. towards including women. Not too many women, not in really powerful positions, and not um, women who have a feminist network behind them. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that feminists, I think, in India and the U.S. and the U.K. and uh, Japan have really learned how to do is how can you tell whether any woman put forward uh, or promoted in international relations or in local politics, how can you tell if they're tokenist? Mm -hmm. How can you tell? Um, and that, that's a skill to be able to tell mm -hmm. what's a token and what's genuine. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, one of the most um, featured women in international politics today with a feminist 
understanding and a feminist support network mm -hmm. um, is the Swedish uh, Minister Foreign. of Foreign Relations, Margot yeah. Wallenberg. Right. And she is, but she's in a party government. I mean, you know, she's not, and ministers of foreign affairs don't always call all the shots. Mm -hmm. It depends whether the prime minister gives the Ministry of Foreign Affairs much leeway. Yeah. So it's been very interesting to watch Margot Wallstrom. So she is, she's a, an elected member of parliament. That's how she can be in the cabinet. Right. And she's from the Social Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. The Social Democratic Party is now being challenged electorally in Sweden by an anti-immigrant party mm -hmm. called the Sweden Democrats. It, it sounds like a very nice party, the Sweden <laughs> Democrats. Right. In fact, that is the far-right anti-immigrant party of Sweden today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how much leeway does Margot Wallstrom, who's a genuine feminist trying to create a feminist foreign policy based on respect for human rights and the empowerment of women. Those are her two pillars. Right. How, how much influence is she getting over immigration policy in Sweden, given the fact that her party leadership is now running scared because of voters support for the far right anti-immigrant party. So there's a good case um, a good instance where a genuinely feminist person has come into a powerful position mm -hmm. with, and this is really important, she's not by herself. Mm -hmm. She is supported by the Swedish women's movement, which is very organized. Mm -hmm. um, it's really crucial that if a woman with feminist understandings and feminist goals gets to be a senior ambassador or gets to be a senior diplomat that that woman has connections lively daily connections with an organized women's movement don't leave her out to dry because if she's left out to dry that is out on a limb by herself the men that she has to work with in her level of policymaking, mm -hmm. they will realize she has quote unquote, no base, meaning no popular political network underneath mm -hmm. her. And that means she will be easily marginalized. Mm -hmm. In fact, Sweden is the first self-proclaimed country to say that it has a feminist foreign policy. So according to you, what does a feminist foreign policy contain? Well, Let's do what, now remember, Sweden isn't Sweden. Sweden is Margot Wallström right. as one cabinet minister. Right. Does, it really. And her, the men around her in the Social Democratic Party, they have not been hostile to her, but they didn't come to this understanding by themselves. Right? So they have had, well, they have had to be tutored Mm -hmm. and persuaded, and one of the things that persuaded those men in Sweden was that there's an independent party called the Feminist Initiative, an election, yes. electoral yes. party, a women's political party that ran for office. And they, the Feminist Initiative, really scared the male social 
democratic elite mm -hmm. because they began to win local offices and European Union parliamentary seats. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the men that Margot Wallstrom has to work with listen to her because mm -hmm. they thought, oh my God, we're going to lose women's votes mm -hmm. because there's an alternative party. So that's one of the reasons they listen to her. But as I say, she's being challenged now because the party leadership is so obsessed with trying to hold back the electoral support of the far-right anti-immigrant party. But here's what, I, here's what Margot Wallstrom says, and then I'll add my own sense of this. But there are three, three things that she says. First of all, a feminist foreign policy is one that prioritizes the support of the respect for and the um, expansion of all human rights. Mm -hmm. now, number two, that women's rights uh, cannot just simply be collapsed into human rights as if once you're for human rights, you'll automatically, that's always in quotes, um, mm -hmm. support women's rights. You have to know what women's rights are. You have to know that you have to take seriously reproductive rights. You have to take seriously violence against women um, as a violation of human rights. Um, so that's the second pillar that is being distinctively curious about and then supporting and expanding women's rights. And then the third pillar um, is that Sweden is a big development, um, international development donor. Mm -hmm. And so um, international development um, aid is very important to Swedish politics. That's not true of every government, but it is true of Sweden, it's true of Norway, it's true of the Netherlands. They're very particular countries where overseas development aid, it's true of Japan, mm -hmm. um, is really a central piece to their foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So she has said and has urged the, her, all her colleagues in government that in development aid, overseas development aid, there must be a distinctive understanding of how gender works to undermine justice and to expand inequality. And if that analysis isn't done, then Swedish foreign aid will be ineffective. That's her third pillar. Mm -hmm. And she's trained the diplomats in the foreign ministry, all diplomat, all um, career civil servants in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs since Margot Wallstrom took over as cabinet minister have had to go through gender training. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that's amazing. But then you have to know what gender training is. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you can have gender training that is not feminist. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's very true. So those are her three pillars, and I think they're very, they're very good ones. The the pillar that I would um, add to what is a feminist foreign policy, but this is very difficult for Wallstrom to do it in Sweden because Sweden is not one of the top five, but it, in Swedish economic terms, it is a big arms seller. Right. And, uh, particularly Saab, the, what we think of as the automobile company. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's a big arms seller, especially fighter planes. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
I would add a pillar that says that a government that has a feminist foreign policy must roll back significantly its dependence on arms production and arms sales as part of its economic and foreign policy. Mm -hmm. She has a very hard time saying that out loud mm -hmm. because the arms sellers in Britain, in Sweden, are a very powerful lobby. Mm -hmm. So she has, she has somewhat challenged it, but she has to be very careful about that mm -hmm. because of the politics of Sweden. Of course. So do you think that if countries like Sweden, developed countries especially like Sweden and to an extent Canada, embrace a feminist foreign policy that other countries will be encouraged to do so as well? It certainly helps a lot. And again, in, in Canada, it's not Canada that has right. supported women's rights. Mm -hmm. It is the Liberal Party government of, of Justin Trudeau because the party before that in fact, dismantled a lot of the infrastructure for supporting women's empowerment, and women's rights in Canada. Yes. So the conservative party that was in power until two years ago, and it was in power for eight years, you hear from Canadian feminists, it was a disaster for, for women. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not because Canadians are just good people. And it's not because Swedes are just good people. It's because in both cases, they currently have elected governments, parties that are led by people who take seriously women's rights, right. and women's empowerment. So having said that, I think it does make a difference. I've heard from friends of mine, and I'd add Iceland to this yes. as well. Iceland's yeah. a very small um, player in international affairs, but it can be very strategically important for supporters of women's rights. Mm -hmm. Those three governments, but also the Norwegians and the Dutch um, governments, um, will oftentimes make sure that even though they're not the big players, they are not Russia, China, India, US, right? They are not those, but they can get into the room because they are governments. And once they're in the room, they can make points that women who are lobbying on the outside of institutions for women's rights and the violation of those rights to be taken seriously, they can get them onto the table. Mm -hmm. uh, so that one, it, it, when a government embraces feminism as one significant part of its government's foreign policy mm -hmm. and says that out loud, it says to everybody else, see, it's not crazy. Right. Okay. <laughs> and that's really big. That is really a big thing Definitely. to be able to have somebody out there in the international world of diplomacy and trade and negotiation mm -hmm. to say, it is not crazy. It in fact is smart. Exactly. This is what's going to get us to a better future. Mm -hmm. So that does have influence on other people. Mm -hmm. And then the second is the more nitty gritty work of diplomatic affairs, which says who gets into the room, who has what ideas. And if the Canadians and the Swedes and the Icelandic, now this is only if the current government still accepted, get into the room, they can oftentimes pull into the room the ideas of really smart women's activist um, groups, such as Red Elephant, 
mm -hmm. uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, mm -hmm. uh, and other women's uh, peace groups and empowerment groups. And getting ideas into the room are at least as important as getting people into the room. Mm -hmm. And I think it would definitely help remove the stigma around the word feminism as well. And the yes, you just, you, have, you just have to say it a lot. Exactly. And, and then you have to, but you have to explain it. See, I mean, that, that comes back to your really good earlier point about the obstacles. Mm -hmm. That is, you do have to tell people, here is why, and you can use your own experience. Here is what I thought before I began asking feminist questions and really taking seriously the findings of gender and feminist researchers. Here's what I used to think. Mm -hmm. Now I realize how unreliable that is, how unhelpful that analysis is. With a feminist analysis, I've realized X, and I've realized Y, and I've realized Z. And that make, has made me smarter about the world. And you, can re you have to persuade people. Mm -hmm. You have to give them gritty examples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a perfect example is that a woman who, or girl, who is sexually assaulted mm -hmm. um, is automatically the object of shame. Right. And you can open that up and say, that's not automatic at all. That's in people's heads. Mm -hmm. People can change their idea, you know, about who is to blame for what. And, and so you, can, you have to give people examples so they can see how their own thinking about the world can change and, and can change in a way that makes them more reliable um, voters, more reliable citizens. Right, of course. So the field of feminism and IR has evolved drastically over the years. And can you tell us about any profound learning experience that you've had in your life or career so far? I think, uh, I think I've been, well, I'm, I'm affected every day when I talk to students, honestly, every mm -hmm. day, you know, right. there's no day without new learning. Um, um, I've also been very, very lucky because I've been invited to take part as a very peripheral person. I mean, I'm not, a main person, but I've been invited to take part in um, meetings with activists from mm -hmm. Syria, mm -hmm. um, women peace activists from Syria. And I've been invited just last spring to take part in a small meeting of activists, peace act women peace activists uh, in the Ukraine, which mm -hmm. as you know, is being challenged militarily by government in Russia um, and sitting there and listening to those quite different um, groups of very courageous and I love your use of the word courage mm -hmm. um, what does courage look like mm -hmm. courage is not a person in military uniform with heavy armor and a gun shooting somebody else that is not courage Courage is being a Syrian woman living in a Syrian town that is being besieged by rival militias as well as Assad's own government military mm -hmm. and still trying to get 
people to the doctor mm -hmm. in the middle of a military siege or trying to get the rival groups to dismantle. They, the Syrian women told about this. Just trying to get the rival armed men to dismantle a road checkpoint barrier so that a trucks with food could get through. Well, that's courage. That is what courage looks like. So I've, I've really learned that international politics is not just the people in the war rooms um, or the command, the head, the command headquarters mm -hmm, mm -hmm. making strategic decisions about where to send their fighters. But international politics of war and peace are about women locally trying to keep the social fabric of trust from disintegrating entirely. Mm -hmm. If there's ever a chance for peace, not only in Syria and Ukraine, but in Kashmir and in um, so many mm -hmm. other areas of South Asia, um, if there's ever a chance for peace, it's going to take local women's peace activist mm -hmm. efforts and their thinking about those efforts being brought to the peace table. They can't be just left as, oh, aren't they wonderful to do this in their village? No, no. They have learned things from trying to take down a checkpoint in a village, and that is expertise, and they should be recognized as experts and brought to the peace table when negotiations start. You can't just pat local women peace activists on the head and say, oh, good mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. They are experts. Now that's one of the things that I've in recent, the last couple of years has really taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm always, I'm always, I'm a constant student. Mm -hmm. You never finish learning ever. That's the good. <laughs> I agree with that. I think that's one of the core principles of feminism to constant learning and unlearning of things that you think, you know, Yes, you're right about the unlearning. Because mm -hmm. sometimes you don't even know you've learned something exactly. until someone challenges you and think, oh my God, I hadn't realized I'd learned that. You're right. right. Unlearning. That's mm -hmm. very exciting to unlearn. <laughs> yes. So what do you see as the future of your work, Miss Enlo? Oh, well, you never, it's going to be full of surprises. You mm -hmm. never know. Because you don't know who is going to find your work useful. So... I mean, this is a surprise. I had no idea that those of you doing this terrific uh, work against violence against women and supporting survivors for re uh, within Red Elephant, I had no idea you even knew about my work. So this is, you know, so this conversation mm -hmm. is already a surprise. Um, so that I'm, I just figure you have to stay wide awake. You have to, as you say, be a perpetual learner. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be ready to be surprised and be of use wherever you can be. Mm -hmm. Right. And have an open mind. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. well, an open, critical mind. Yes, right? definitely. definitely. Right? And that's what it means to have an open mind and be a feminist. Mm -hmm. Feminist doesn't close off your mind, but it means you're very wary when somebody says, you know, you should just be grateful for men's protection. And then your <laughs> yes. critical mind goes into work and you think, I don't think so. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs>
So finally, I'd like to ask you, um, what advice would you give to aspiring international relations students and feminists? Tell us what you find. Okay. <laughs> no, really, mm -hmm. because we, the only way that we're developing this whole area, and it's not just an academic field, it's an activist field, it's a field of understanding so we can be citizens of the world, mm -hmm. feminists of the world. And that is whatever you find as you're doing your own work or as you're making sense of your own experience or you're sharing um, organizational strategies that work or don't work, tell other people. Mm -hmm. Find other ways to tell people. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, because of the work you're doing, there's so many new forums in which to um, have podcasts and have blogs and have YouTube um, videos. There are lots of ways where you can share what you find. Right. Mm -hmm. So don't, don't wait until somebody else calls you an expert. <laughs> right. All right. Thank you so much, Miss Cynthia. I think along with me, all of our listeners and readers uh, will be extremely inspired by your work and your views and thank you so much for sharing your experiences as well well i'm just delighted to be a teeny part of the big work of red elephant and i expect to learn from all of you thank you so much that means a lot coming from you thank you uh -huh. well we're in this together yes definitely <laughs> thank you